Today's scripture reading is in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to follow along with me. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to send you home with one. You can pick one up on the tables in the vestibule on your way out. Again, we're reading in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Dana. Um, well, again, it's good to be with you all. If I didn't uh, say who I am, my name is Reed Kappel. I serve as the campus pastor, and typically we don't preach with a hot tub on stage, but uh, this is, uh, we have our baptism service um, this afternoon, and so this is why this is here. So I give myself about a 40% chance of falling into this at some point during the service, and so we'll just see how it goes. But, um, but before we jump into God's Word, I want to pray for our time uh, as we continue on in worship. So let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, we do believe that you reign and rule. Holy Spirit, we believe that you are at work in revealing the truth of who Jesus is to us. And Jesus, we know that you are the king, that you are the one who leads your church. And so may we in this time have ears to hear what you have to say to us. And so Lord, as as, as the old preachers once said, Lord, I ask that you would in this time stand in my body, think with my mind, speak with my tongue, that we might know you that we might align our wills and everything about us with your word and your truth. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, this, is, uh, this is Daniel Kish. I have a picture of Daniel Kish here. Daniel is, is an avid uh, hiker, tree climber, and mountain biker, which are just kind of nice hobbies for most of us. But for Daniel, th- these are actually remarkable accomplishments because Daniel is blind. Daniel, at the age of 13 months, had his eyes removed because of a cancer that plagued his body. And so he's lived without vision the vast majority of his life. But that hasn't stopped him from doing the many things that people with vision are able to do, which is a remarkable story. If you haven't learned about Daniel Kish, I encourage you to do it. But what has enabled Daniel to do the things that people with vision can do is that Daniel has developed this keen ability of echolocation. And you might be familiar with echolocation. It's something that that bats and dolphins use, and now Daniel Kish. Uh, Daniel is able to produce this remarkably loud clicking sound with his tongue, and in so doing has trained his ear to hear the reverberation of that clicking off of objects within his field of vision, so to speak, 
that then fabricates this ability to see. It's a remarkable thing that his vision, his lack of vision, has allowed him to have this keen sense of hearing. It's what enables him to ride his bike on trails as well as on the street, which is just an incredible thing. This is a true story, y'all, I, I guarantee you. And what's so amazing is when we think about someone like Daniel, someone who has limitations, disabilities, or weaknesses, we tend to focus on the things that they can't do. We, we identify them by their weakness, and we don't see what they can do as a result of their weakness. Because what's so interesting about Daniel is that his weakness is precisely the thing, the weakness of his lack of vision, is precisely what equipped him to have the strength of his hearing that developed this echolocation skill. He's, he is referred to very admirably as Batman because he has the ability to see, so to speak, in the dark. Now, I share this story about Daniel because in some ways, Daniel is a metaphor for the church in Philadelphia. The church in Philadelphia, by all accounts, is a church that looked very weak, insignificant, and powerless. And yet, they are a church that is stronger than we may realize, not because of who they are or what they have done, but precisely because of who their king is, namely, King Jesus. And so this morning, as we meet together in Revelation 3, I want us to look at and unpack this one very simple idea that is hard for us to grasp, and at, and at, at face value is very paradoxical. And that is this, that when Jesus is king, winning feels a lot like losing. When Jesus is king, winning feels a lot like losing. Because when we seek to align our values, our vision, our vocation, everything about us, when we align all of who we are with Jesus and his kingdom, we find that it's not only challenging and, and, and countercultural. For those of us who follow Jesus, we, we know that. But we also find it incredibly paradoxical and perplexing. The values of Jesus' kingdom don't seem to make sense to our natural way of thinking. But those who live under the reign of King Jesus find that there is an entirely different category and pathway to things like power, victory, triumph, and conquering. And the first thing we see as we look at the church, this letter to the church at Philadelphia, the first thing we see is that a conquering church gains strength through weakness. A conquering church gains strength through weakness. Now, if you're uh, joining us for the first time uh, or for, you haven't been for a while, we've been in the book of Revelation looking at these seven letters that Jesus writes to these seven churches. And what's really fascinating is that of all the seven churches, there are only two churches that Jesus has no beef with. Like every, every other letter, Jesus is like, I got some problems with you people. But we come to the church of Philadelphia and Smyrna, the only two churches that Jesus doesn't have a word of rebuke for. In fact, all he has are words of commendation and praise. But what makes that even more unique is that these two churches are the two weakest, insignificant, and powerless churches of all the seven. Smyrna is described as being a church plagued with poverty and great suffering. In Philadelphia, we read in verse 8 the description of this church. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And yet these two seemingly weak, insignificant, powerless churches are the churches that Jesus celebrates and praises. And, and hear me, he's not doing so to comfort them. He's not like, gosh, Smyrna and Philadelphia, they're having a rough go at it. Let me go and send some encouraging words. No, Jesus is actually saying something about the inherent goodness of being in positions of weakness. 
of being in positions of dependence and desperation. And, and this flies in the face of the way we tend to think about power of authority and influence in our world. We tend to think our cultural's conventional way of thinking is that strength is formed through your own abilities, that glory is achieved through your accomplishments, and that your enemies are defeated through your own power. But as we see in this letter to the church of Philadelphia, there's a very different way of thinking about power. But, but these conventional ways of thinking, the, the power is accomplished through our own strength and accomplishments, this is so common. We see it everywhere around us, and frankly, we see it within us. We see it in the ways that our politicians use their rhetoric to not simply argue with, but vilify and demonize their opponents. We, we see it in the marketplace where, where colleagues and coworkers are, are not simply people to collaborate with, but they are competitors that we climb over as we ascend the corporate ladder. We see it in the way that there are power structures and values established to different peoples of ethnicities and races in our culture. We, we see it in the way, even in our schools, how the popular in some ways are there precisely because they have put others down to build themselves up. We see it in the church, the way we are so morally superior in ways to others that we look at those people or even that church as being wrong and beneath us because they don't think, act, look, and believe like we do. We find these power struggles at play in our culture, and they stand opposed to the way Jesus depicts the picture of what true power is. Our family, we recently watched the, the live-action movie Aladdin, which isn't as good as the original cartoon, but it's really good. But there's this scene where the, the villain Jafar is talking to Aladdin, and he's telling Aladdin of what the true pathway to greatness is. And he simply says this. He says, be the most powerful man in the room, or you're nothing. And, and we look at that and we're like, well, we, we know that's wrong. We can look at, like, we know enough. We've seen enough Disney movies to know that Jafar is not a character of virtue that we should emulate. We see the deplorable nature of the Jafars. We want to be Aladdin. We want to be the diamond in the rough. We want to be the hero from humble beginnings. But if we're honest, like, we look at, at, at Aladdin, we're like, yeah, but that, that's the virtue for like other people. If you want to be kind and humble, like that's, that's great for you, but like, do we really believe deep down that the pathway to greatness is actually found in humility? If we're honest, we actually believe Jafar, that if you want to have power and significance, you must be the most powerful man in the room or you are nothing. Deep down, we tend to operate, I believe, from a mode of, of social Darwinism, that the, the, the strong survive, that the fittest are the ones that prevail, the mightier are the ones who conquer. But for those of us who identify with Jesus, this must not be our pathway towards greatness. And in some ways, my guess is for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, this may be one of the reasons that has kept you from following Jesus or pushed you away from the church because you've seen too many Christians who have abused their power in asserting themselves over you. Rather than seeing power as something to be stewarded for the good of others, it has been wielded for their own gain. And this is far too often common in the church. And of all people, of all people in the world who, who should kind of reject this idea of be the strongest man in the room or you're nothing, it should be followers of Jesus. Because at the center of our faith, we, we see a Savior who, who brought about life and victory through the defeat of death. We, we see that at the center of our faith, we have a God who displayed his glory by humbly serving others, by entering into our world. 
at the center of our faith, we see a king, a king who is humble, a king who does not control and dictate, but a king who serves, a king who is crowned through defeat, a king who, whose winning looks a lot like losing. And so when it comes to understanding what power looks like, what conquering looks like, the church of Jesus Christ must have a very different paradigm than what our culture tends to tell us. The conquering church finds strength in weakness, in places of desperation, independence. And we will either learn this truth and this lesson either by, by being kind of knocked off our high horse or through the intentional practices of humbling ourselves and limiting ourselves. Which is why I think if I think about what it looks like for us as a church to, to grow into this reality of gaining strength through weakness, there's a habit that I think it would be good for us as a church to practice together on a regular basis. And that's the, the habit, the discipline of fasting. And I know sometimes fasting, it's, it's one of the weirder disciplines. Like those are the ones that like really, like really religious freaks kind of do. Like it feels like a religious chore, a spiritual kind of uh, uh, ob- obligatory thing you must do. But, but what we see in fasting, fasting is not this kind of strange mystical practice, but it is a way for us to intentionally limit ourselves so that we might understand that God is the one who has power. Fasting is basically this discipline of saying, I'm going to intentionally deny myself something when I don't need to, so that I can be prepared to deny it when I do need to. That's what fasting is. We tend to think of fasting as just like an end in of itself. Like, I did that, I fasted, I'm good, I'm a super Christian, where's my gold star? But actually what it is, is a way to train off the spot to be ready on the spot. It's a way to suspend desire and fight off temptation when it doesn't matter so that you can be prepared to fight against it when it does matter. Fasting is about putting ourselves in a place of weakness by denying desires, even if those desires aren't bad, but learning to say, only Jesus will have mastery over me. That's what fasting does. It is a discipline to limit ourselves, put ourselves in a place of weakness where we say, Jesus and Jesus alone is the one who will have mastery over my life. And so whether that is fasting from things like food or, or from spending or from entertainment or technology or social media or whatever, it is a way of saying no to something so that we might be able to more faithfully and consistently say yes to Jesus when it truly counts. I believe this is a discipline that is good for us as a church as we seek to reorient our understanding of what power and conquering looks like. So the conquering church gains strength through weakness. But the second thing we learn about the church of Philadelphia is that a conquering church fights for her enemies. A conquering church fights for her enemies. Now again, this is something that we like in theory. We like this idea on paper. Yes, forgive your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. We get that. But man, like this really feels like a practice that looks a lot more like losing than winning. Loving your enemies, giving them an advantage, serving them, caring for them, building them up over yourself, that is a formula for losing. And, and Christians, we know this. We know we should love our enemies. We know we should pray for them. But, but man, we just, it's so much easier to despise them than to forgive them. It's so much easier to isolate ourselves away from, from the bad, the dirty, the wicked, the, the repugnant other, the, those people, rather than welcoming them in and treating them as, as potential family members. It's, it's way easier to kind of look at those people as, as what is wrong with the world. But what we see in Jesus' words to the church at Philadelphia, he calls his followers, the church of Jesus Christ, to a different posture. 
Look with me at verse 9. Jesus says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. He says he will say this, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, just as a quick side note, that reference to the synagogue of Satan, that, that is not anti-Semitic language. After all, G, I mean, Jesus was Jewish. What Jesus is saying here in this reference is that anyone who rejects Jesus or denies Jesus stands opposed to Jesus as an enemy. And so this same title, the synagogue of Satan, the congregation of Satan, he would have used the same title if, if this group of people were uh, a group of pagan worshipers. It's not about their Jewish identity or culture. In fact, he even says that they're lying about that. The point of what Jesus is saying here is that he is going to fight for his enemies, not against them. That Jesus, the king over all, is going to welcome in, not shut out those who stand opposed to him. And when Jesus tells the church at Philadelphia, when he says, I'm going to make your enemies bow down at your feet, we might read that from a lens of conventional power and say, oh, this is their chance. This is the moment of vindication. This is now the chance for Philadelphia to exact their revenge. But no, instead, what Jesus is saying to Philadelphia is that I am going to invite your enemies to church and they're going to worship with you. They're not going to worship you as they bow at your feet. They're going to worship me alongside you. Can you be okay with that church? Are you prepared for that church? Do you understand what Jesus is saying to Philadelphia, but also to us? It is not about defeating our enemies, because you see, in Jesus' economy, winning looks a lot like losing, because enemies are not conquered by making them nothing. They are conquered by making them family. In fact, you, you might remember the, the famous words penned by President Abraham Lincoln, do I not destroy my enemy when I make him my what? My friends. This is the posture of the follower of Jesus, that we make our enemies our friends. Now, I want to tell a story. When I was, um, about a few years ago, I was watching the NBA Finals with a friend of mine at a sports bar. And, and we were there, and there weren't a lot of people there, but there was one gentleman at the bar who was very loud and vocal and was, was hurling many racist slurs out loud within earshot for many people to hear about the players in the game. And it was very uncomfortable, and, and it got to the point where I, like, I couldn't just sit idly by. I, I had to intervene and respond. How I have not been pummeled and brutally beaten in public by now, I don't know. But I, I confronted this man, and I just said, I said, hey, bro, like, you, you don't need to be saying that. Like, you need to, you need to uh, pipe down. Like, this is not appropriate. And he got defensive and kind of like, you know, threw some words back at me. But eventually, he quieted down and, and shut up. Now, before you, like, praise me for my noble works, you have to know what was genuinely in my heart. As I looked at this man, I, I, I genuinely hated him. I had a hatred for him that was, I, like, I, I have not felt that in a real, honest, visceral way, but like, I genuinely hated this man. And, and, and I didn't just hate his sin, I didn't just hate his racism, I hated him. I didn't just want his sin eradicated, I wanted him eradicated. I, I, wanted, I wanted his sin to not just go away for him to repent, I wanted him to not exist. I genuinely said, when I came back to the table with my friend, I literally said out loud, that is what is wrong with our world. And you know what's so ironic? is that that morning I preached a sermon about how the fundamental problem of our world stems from the human heart, not in those people. Preachers got to listen to their own sermons. 
And I say this because, again, my posture should have been, because, like, again, we should be angry about things like that. It should stir within us a righteous indignation, but it should lead to us fighting for our enemies, not against them. There's a difference between saying, I hate what you're doing, I want more for you. There's a difference between that and saying, I hate who you are and what you've done. You are what is wrong with this world. But Jesus calls us to fight for our enemies and not against them. That is the posture of a follower of Jesus. And so, so as we think about the, the spiritual habit that we should adopt and embrace to kind of grow in this category of a conquering church, let me suggest this. That a church who fights for her enemies should practice prayers of confession. Should practice prayers of confession. We need to practice confessing the ways we think about, speak to, understand, or, 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 um, um, or view and treat those who, who we strongly disagree with. We need to think about how we treat those who we consider our enemies. And hear me, I'm not talking about terrorists and religious persecutors. When I talk about our enemies, I'm talking about the people who we, we disagree with and differ on so many levels. The, the person you disagree with politically, the person you disagree with when it comes to their social status, when it comes to their convictions or their worldview, how do you view, treat, speak to, and think of these people? Because they are the closest thing to our enemies today. We all have a person, this kind of faceless person or people group that we tend to have a bit of contempt for, that, that when we hear certain words and phrases said, we associate them with a person or a people group, and we start to see our blood boiling. When we hear words like Republican and Democrat, when we hear words like socialism and capitalism, when we hear phrases like black lives matter, all lives matter, LGBTQ, gender roles, feminism, there is no doubt something in some of us that we're feeling. We, we feel this kind of visceral response and maybe even a contempt for a person or a people group in general that we associate with these categories and we see as someone who is a repugnant cultural other. And we have a hard time understanding how to love them, care for them, listen to them, engage them in relationship. And, and here, I, I say this not to just provoke you. I'm not just trying to get a reaction out of you. I say this as an illustration to show how polarized we are as a culture and how we are so given to outrage when we engage with those who differ from us. And the church is often guilty in being complicit in creating and perpetuating that culture of divide where, where we find that, that hate is equivalent with disagreeing with someone. And that love requires full acceptance. We are so confused on what it means to live, as the philosopher Rousseau once said, how do we live civilly among those whom we consider damned? We don't know how to do that, but the church of Jesus Christ is called to confess her sins. I believe that the, the act of confessing our sins is a way for us to be prepared to till the soil, so to speak, for the seeds of peace, love, unity, and forgiveness to be sown and to grow out of. When this becomes our habit, I believe that we can offer the world a different alternative of what it means to live in civility and peace with one another. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, therefore, let's just kind of suspend all of our differences and just kind of get along and sing kumbaya with this vague amalgamation of beliefs that come together in this syncretistic way. I'm saying, yes, the, ch the church of Jesus Christ must stand for truth, must speak out against falsehood must call sin, sin, but she must do so first by calling out in herself, amen? We need to start with ourselves. 
The church of Jesus Christ calls out sin, but she does so first by calling it out in herself. And she does so with her enemies, not in a way that fights against them, but fights for them. So prayers of confession, I believe, is that habit for us as a church. The conquering church gains strength through weakness. She fights for her enemies. But lastly, as the letter continues, we see that she trusts in the power of another. She trusts in the power of another. As the letter concludes, Jesus reminds this church, this fledgling, weak, insignificant, little power church of where her true hope is found. And Jesus is very clear. It's not in their accomplishments in the city. It's not in the flourishing of the city. It's not found in how great their influence is in the city. In fact, it's not found in their city at all. It's found in an entirely different city. Look with me at verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. You see, their hope, this, this, this fledgling, weak, powerless church in Philadelphia recognizes that their hope is not found in how well and how flourished their city is, how, how, how influential they are in their city. They recognize that their hope is found in their primary citizenship in the city of God that is to come, that Jesus invites us to build towards as we inhabit whatever city we live in now. Their hope is not found in their citizenship as citizens of Philadelphia, but rather in their citizenship as citizens of the city of God. And they they remind themselves of this truth as they gather in worship. That's part of what gathering in worship is. It's a way for us to remind ourselves as followers of Jesus. If you identify as a follower of Jesus, gathered worship is a way for us to say where our primary citizenship resides. As we gather together, We tell ourselves where our allegiances, where our love should be ordered. And church, this is a a word for us as well, that we should recognize that our hope is not found in in our city or our nation, how well or how how, uh, damaging or destructive our cities and nation may be. Our hope is in the city that is to come, a city that Jesus invites his church to build towards as we inhabit whatever city we live in. And so as we think about being this kind of church, a conquering church that that recognizes that strength is found through weakness, that fights for her enemies, and trusts in the power of another, I think that the spiritual habit for us to be this kind of conquering church is that we must gather and worship. We must gather and worship. We, We so often view gathered worship, kind of there's two extreme, uh, two extremes on this, on the spectrum. We, we kind of view gathered worship as either this place to have some kind of religious experience at best, or it's this place where we kind of have to come, it's this spiritual and religious chore at worst. But what we don't see often enough is that why we gather together as a church is because it is a blessed opportunity to reorient our minds, our hearts, our affections, and our hands to say that we are fundamentally, first and foremost, citizens of the city of God as we seek to be citizens of whatever city or country we are in. As theologian and cultural commentator Russell Moore once said, that that we are Americans best when we are not Americans first. And I think that is a proper way of understanding and ordering our allegiances. That's what the church is about. 
uh, theologian and philosopher James K. A. Smith and talking about the importance of gathered worship and what it does for us. It's not just a, a religious obligation. It is something that forms us and shapes us to be a sent out people. He says this, the church is less a contrast society we retreat into than a recentering community of practice that we are sent from. As an imagination station, which I just, I just love that phrase, that we should change the name of our church to imagination station, but uh, no, we should. As an imagination station whereby our social imaginary is shaped by the gospel, the church isn't an end in itself, an alternative place, but rather a formational community of the spirit where we are equipped for service. That's the picture of the church. That's what's going on in Philadelphia. And that's what we long to be as a church gathered. Not to come and listen to great music and listen to mediocre sermons and have some wonderful donut holes. As great as those things may be, we gather to be formed and sent out to be God's people living primarily as citizens of the city of God as we seek the flourishing of whatever city we are in. Being the church faithfully gathered in worship is what is needed to be the church fruitfully scattered for service. We need a good Sunday together so that we might be more faithful and fruitful in our Monday lives together. As we gather and worship together, we we center our lives on Jesus and his gospel that tells us you are redeemed and forgiven not by what you have done, but by what I have done. That you find life through my death, that you find glory through humility. That's what we do when we gather and worship. As we gather and worship together, we order our loves and our allegiances around Jesus and his kingdom. As we gather together in worship, we declare that we are a people who will boldly and compassionately fight for our enemies, not against them. And the reason why, church, the reason why we should be a people who fight for our enemies and not against them is because that is the primary and very posture of Jesus towards his enemies, namely you and me. That the reason why we should be a people who fight for our enemies and not against them is because Jesus, as he looked upon us in our brokenness, in our sinful rebellion against him, he did not eradicate us along with our sin, but graciously said, I will redeem you by becoming your sin and I will make you new. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel. That's what compels us to be a people who don't fight against our enemies, but fight for their good. And the more we center our lives on this gospel and this good news, the more we will find ourselves being a people who are able to pursue strength through weakness, who are able to fight for and not against our enemies, and trust in the power of another, not in our own. If you're in Christ, aren't you thankful that Jesus did not look upon you in your broken, sinful state and say, I'm just going to wipe you out along with your sin, but said, no, instead I will take your sin and I, I will nail it to myself, on the cross, so that you will bear it no more. This is the posture Jesus has had towards us. He did not eradicate us along with our sin, but instead, he loved us in such a way that while he hated our sin, he loved us enough to redeem us from it by becoming our sin in our place. And he has done so to invite us into his work of redeeming and restoring all things as his people sent out to be the hope of the world. This is what a conquering church looks like. It is a church that finds glory through humility, that finds victory through defeat, who finds that her enemies are conquered through love and who finds life in the death of Jesus. When Jesus is king, life feels 
so backwards. And winning looks a lot like losing. But the question for all of us is, are we willing to deny ourselves and let him be the conqueror of our lives as we seek to be the church that conquers in the right way, finding strength and weakness, loving and fighting for her enemies, and trusting in the power of another? Will Jesus be your conqueror? I, I want to pray to close our time, but I think it would be appropriate for us to confess together. And we should practice what we preach. And so, so I think it would be appropriate for us to engage together in this prayer of confession. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to lead us in this time. There will be words that are underlined that we'll say together. It's very simple. Most of them will say, forgive us. But let us lead us in this time of prayer, responding in the words together that are underlined. So let us pray together. Merciful God, for the things we have done that we regret, forgive us. For the things we have failed to do that we regret, forgive us. For all the times we have acted without love, forgive us. For all the times we have reacted without thought, forgive us. For all the times we have withdrawn care, forgive us. For all the times we have failed to forgive, forgive us. For hurtful words said and helpful words unsaid, for unfinished tasks and unfulfilled hopes, God of all time, forgive us and help us to lay down our burden of regret. Father in heaven, we come to you in prayer, longing to be a people who fully recognize, Lord, that, that if we are caught in our sin, who can stand? Who can survive against your judgment? But Lord, we are simultaneously a people who cling to the hope of Jesus Christ and say those who are in Christ Jesus face no condemnation. So, Lord, may we be a people who know that Jesus is our only hope. May we be so oriented around his gospel and his kingdom that we would find strength and weakness, that we would fight for and not against our enemies, and that our hope would be in your city that is to come, not in our city or our efforts. Lord, may we be this church that conquers in the way that you have conquered, through love, through compassion, through the victory of defeat in death, for that is where we find life. We pray this together in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.